The world is ending. Again. Doomsdayers and apocalyptic prophets have warned of coming calamity for millennia. Still, humanity persists. This podcast invites entrepreneurs, scholars, community leaders, artists, and many others to envision the end of the world according to their expertise. I'm Vera Rose Smith, your host, and this is Art at the End of the World. Today's guest is Joyce Sai, Associate Professor of Practice in the School of Art and Art History at the University of Iowa and Chief Curator at the University of Iowa's Stanley Museum of Art. Tsai is also the director of the Intermedia Research Initiative, and her curatorial, pedagogical, and scholarly work engages in questions of technology, politics, philosophy, and modern and contemporary art. Her book, Laszlo Maholinage, Painting After Photography, is winner of the Phillips Collection Book Prize. Our conversation was recorded on Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. So let us begin by having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your current role. Sure. My name is Joyce Tai. I am uh, chief curator of the Stanley Museum of Art. Um, I'm also associate professor of practice at the School of Art and Art History here at the University of Iowa. Um, in my role as a chief curator, um, I am in charge of really thinking through how the collections at the Stanley Museum of Art can tell lots of different kinds of stories. So I work with other curators to really bring out uh, artworks, uh, particular strengths uh, uh, in our collection um, and, you know, bring it on view. So one of the things they're working on right now is the inaugural exhibition for the new uh, building that's opening up uh, hopefully in 2022. So um, that's who I am. Uh, and uh, the reason that I think you invited me on this podcast is to talk a little bit about um, conservation um, and art conservation and uh, what that is and, um, you know, the, the kind of this wonderful term uh, called uh, inherent vice that pertains to the, the the ways in which things kind of fall apart despite our best efforts. So. Yes, exactly. Sorry if that was rambly. No, it's fine. Um, you just jumped ahead a little bit. We will definitely yeah. get to inherent vice. Um, yes, because this is art at the end of the world, and you are literally dealing with a type of ending for art as a person who does research into conservation. Uh, so before we get there, I'd love to know a little bit more about how you got to where you are professionally. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. So um, I kind of uh, took a slightly uh, rambling route um, when I was in college. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm uh, an immigrant. Um, my parents uh, and I came to the United States when I was a kid. And um, like a lot of uh, immigrant children going off to college, um, my parents had set some uh, pretty strict parameters. <laughs> like, I, I was not allowed to study art. And um, so I, uh, I had always had an interest in art. Um, but so when I got to college, um, I actually only took one art history course, and then my parents were like, you know, and then you're going to do something practical. So I told them that I was going to study history and become a lawyer. So that's what I told them I was going to do. Um, but when I was in college, I actually ended up doing, uh, focusing on German uh, history and German intellectual history in particular. Um, and because of that area of focus, um, I was lucky enough to get a Fulbright to Berlin where I uh, studied uh, art, contemporary art, uh, but also philosophy. Um, and that, that was really where I began to get serious, you know, very, very interested in um, studying art, uh, you know, as, as a part, when, when I actually even began to see that it was possible to study art, um, you know, in graduate school. So uh, after my Fulbright, um, I went to graduate school and uh, worked on art history. And I had this amazing opportunity to be uh, an in, you know, a graduate intern um, at the National Gallery of Art. And the National Gallery has uh, these really wonderfully um, constructed uh, paid fellowships for graduate students uh, and also now for undergraduates. Um, and you have an opportunity to kind of get to know 
what's, you know, what people in museums have to consider uh, when they want to exhibit or research or to take care of artworks. And so it was at the National Gallery that I started working really closely with uh, art conservators, conservation scientists, and started looking at art from the perspective of what it takes to make sure that, you know, a painting doesn't flake off, like the paint on a painting doesn't flake off, or a sculpture doesn't just kind of like deteriorate into dust. Um, so, you know, those, it was, it was really quite striking being at the museum and working there as a graduate student. And before I had worked in the museum, my sense of art was really shaped by, you know, when you go to go into a nice exhibition, what you notice is really how great the art look, the artwork looks. Um, you don't really think about how vulnerable they are. Um, when you look at artworks on the screen, when you're doing a PowerPoint, you know, we see these kind of glowing images. We don't really think about the materiality there, you know, the ways in which they might have, um, again, bodies that might be vulnerable. And it was really in the context of the museum where I started seeing things uh, in storage, um, things that were not, uh, that were not exhibition ready or picture ready, so to speak that um, I started thinking about um, damage, um, about the possibility that artworks might have a specific, um, you know, shelf life or lifespan. Um, when I started thinking about the kind of life and death, of, you know, potential death of artworks. Um, so that's, that's where I really started um, getting interested in those sorts of uh, questions. So does that answer your question? Yes, and I'd like to know a little bit more about your research outside of conservation. So you are a specialist of the art of the 1930s, and yes. my students had a lot of questions about that, and so I'd love you yeah, to tell us sure. um, what drew you to German in particular, um, yeah. as both a language and as a, yep. a culture, and then yep. your reflections on this specialization. Sure. Um, so I... Uh, there are really silly answers to that question, and there are also serious answers to that question. The serious, so the, the reason why I ended up studying German was, again, because I was an immigrant child. Um, my parents wanted me to take a foreign language that was useful, and uh, I have family members who are in the hard sciences, and, um, you know, they said, she's going to learn something. German is going to be a really useful language to have. This is back in the day where, you know, a lot of, um, you know, technical and hard science publications were, were in, in German. So I started learning German relatively early. Um, but then when I got to grad school and I started really working on German philosophy, um, what drew me to it is that this is, you know, German philosophy and especially uh, people like Kant, the, you know, this wonderful moment um, of the Enlightenment and also of uh, German Romanticism. Um, so we're talking about the beginning uh, of the, or the end of the uh, 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. Um, you had a lot of German thinkers really contend with, you know, um, how how are we as human beings free um, in communities with one another? You know, that's one of the kind of major questions that German thinkers are working through um, in a context where uh, Germany as a country uh, hadn't been formulated, you know, didn't exist as a state. Um, and, you know, I started, like, German philosophy is, uh, provides the underpinning for a lot of um, you know, the ways in which uh, Western societies, Western, you, you know, the, the, I would say in, in a lot of respects, the, the best of um, the possibility of thinking freedom um, comes from a German, uh, you know, philosophical tradition. At the same time, um, Germany is, of course, also... Um, you know, when we're talking about the 1930s, uh, it's the home of Hitler's fascism, you know. So uh, at the same time that this is a tradition that um, provides, you know, so much uh, amazing promise, um, it also has this incredibly dark side. Um, and so I was working, I actually didn't really 
you know, plan to work on the 1930s, I actually began when I was an undergraduate looking at the 1920s in part because, you know, it's in the 1920s where things really seemed like there was so much um, potential to change. You know, uh, the First World War had happened. It was completely cataclysmic. There were so many thinkers and artists and young people who really, you know, were committed to making sure that the First World War didn't happen again, that we waste human potential um, and technology mm -hmm. um, in creating, you know, the, the tools of destruction. Um, and so I was really drawn to this kind of like incredibly, you know, it was dark, it was kind of edgy, but it was also like, there was a lot of promise in the 1920s and um, a lot of the artists that I started working on um, or started studying, um, these were artists who were part of this amazing movement like the Bauhaus. They were responsible for, you know, when we think of like modern design, um, you know, these are the people who are responsible for it. Um, but what I, what I started you know, so the 1920s felt like this really bright and open moment of promise. And, uh, you know, and I started kind of digging into this material and started asking the question, well, what happened? What happened uh, with these artists in the 1930s? Um, and, you know, the, the sort of the story that we all like to tell about these artists um, who were such bathbreakers, these Bauhaus artists, people like, um, you know, I've written a book on Moholy Naj, uh, who's a Hungarian-born artist um, and really influential in the 1920s as a photographer, as a theorist, as a designer. Um, you know, when we follow his trajectory, the, there's, a, there's a desire to kind of see, okay, and then there's all this heroism, all this promise, and then in the 1930s, just disappears, falls off the ledge. Um, but these people don't disappear. They end up coming to the United States. Um, they're trying to get papers to get out of fascist, you know, fascist Europe, um, that, you know, a Europe that was torn apart by war. Um, and, you know, these were people really just trying to, you know, somehow survive. Um, and so, you know, that's how I ended up getting interested in the 1930s was really by following the sort of trajectory of a lot of artists who lived through the 1930s um, and had to grapple with, uh, had to, you know, had to grapple with fascism. Um, does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, that does. Thank you so much. So continuing in that train of thought, do you see any current emerging patterns in the art world that mirror this period of art history in the 1920s and 1930s today? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of things that are happening that, um, I think what's, what's really fascinating if we look at the 1920s and 30s are the ways in which, um, artists who are trying to do experimental things um, and who really wanted to, you know, explore uh, really cutting edge ideas. Um, oftentimes they have to link up with large institutions, um, sometimes their governments, sometimes their schools, sometimes their businesses. Um, and so, you know, I think there, there are ways in which um, there are really ambitious projects that can only be done, uh, that can be achieved with the support of, you know, juggernauts. Um, and uh, there are moments when those uh, resources become curtailed. And it's in the moment when resources kind of vanish that I think artists um, come up with incredibly creative ways of, you know, articulating their vision. And I think we're, we're in one of those moments right now where, um, you know, I've, I've seen students who, uh, and, and professors and artists, who all of a sudden don't have access to the materials or their, uh, the equipment or the, you know, the studios. Um, to make work um, and have had to turn to a, 
totally different scale and scope. Um, and that's something that absolutely happens in the 1930s when you see artists um, being driven out of um, Nazi Germany, but also, you know, suffering the consequences of the Great Depression, um, that uh, they start turning towards um, oftentimes ephemeral materials. Uh, they turn towards other forms of experimentation. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think there's, there's, uh, there's an interesting way in which this pandemic um, has led to a kind of um, it's just like a way of manipulating the kind of small accessible uh, technologies and materials uh, to do some really interesting things. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, so that's actually a really hopeful answer that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> so I'm grateful for that. Um, less yeah, I mean, like, you yeah. know, it's, yeah, it's, it, what's funny about the 1930s is that it looks, when we look at the 1930s, one of the things when you study that period is that um, the 1920s, I mean, this is totally obvious, uh, but that, you know, the 20s came before the 30s and the 40s came after the 30s. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> that these, that's, that's a really weird way of saying that, um, you know, even the most cataclysmic events um, in human history don't happen because of pure evil. You know, it's not like the, the Holocaust, um, the Third Reich fascism didn't happen overnight and it didn't happen because there was some sort of, it's like some manifest manifestation of pure evil. Um, it's the manifestation of groups of people who identify, saw, saw you know, um, identified in uh, a set of policies with a set of, um, you know, institutions uh, with a set of, uh, you know, po political statements that um, seemed to align with their own interests. Um, that Hitler came into power, again, not overnight, um, but it happened in stages. Uh, and, you know, the kind of power that he was able to amass um, required, uh, you know, buy-in of legitimate kind of, uh, you know, mainstream politicians um, and legal maneuvers. So, you know, um, the horrors of the, the Second World War um, and the horrors of fascism, um, you know, they, they are... I think they, they sometimes stand as a kind of like moral litmus test for us. But I think the much more disturbing thing to consider is um, actually how slowly all of that came together. And when it did come together, um, how, you know, how huge and horrific and seemingly unstoppable it became as a kind of mechanism of uh, industrialized death. <laughs> um, the... The flip side, the hopeful side to that, is that um, over the course of those years, um, people had to figure out um, how to, well, they, you know, how to get out, get each other out, um, how to, you know, come up with alternatives, um, how to assist one another. Um, and so, you know, when you look at the the efforts that were undertaken to um, create the conditions where humanity might survive, <laughs> you know, um, those efforts were huge, but they were also small. Um, they were taken um, they were taken by individuals uh, in quiet solidarity, sometimes in loud solidarity. Um, but you know, the, the forms of support that had to be that people had to strategize and, and devise, um, you know, took a lot of risk, um, and it was every day. Um, and the everydayness of forms of resistance, the smallness of forms of resistance are things that I think are helpful for us to keep in mind. Absolutely. And how did artists in particular 
respond to fascism during this period? And then how did fascist regimes respond to artists? That's a really good question. And there's no um, cookie cutter answer. Um, I'm going to give you two examples. So um, Laszlo Mahoylinaj is an artist who I've written about a lot. And he's uh, Hungarian born. Um, and he uh, was a member of the Bauhaus in the 1920s. Um, he really was, you know, advocating for a totally new way of making art. Um, you know, he, even though he painted throughout all these years, he was, you know, he was really declaring like the easel painting is something you hang on the wall is totally over. Um, it's not something anybody should really be interested in in the age of these new technologies of mass communication with these new technologies of, um, you know, these, uh, like the telephone and, uh, you know, the potential of television he was already talking about in the 1920s. Um, you know, what artists really need to be doing is, you know, um, figuring out what to do with all this new great technology. Um, and so at the end of the 1920s, uh, he gave up his teaching position to really devote himself to that, uh, you know, mission of making art with electric light, for instance. Um, so, you know, that this is an artist who in the 1920s was really committed to transforming what human bodies and human visions was capable of um, through technology. And um, when the, when, you know, 1933 happened, when uh, Hitler came to power, um, the, the it's not as if the world completely changed overnight and yet it sort of did at the same time um so we're at the beginning of the great depression um when all of this kind of hits um moholinage is uh really in he's in exile but he's more in economic exile he just couldn't get a job in germany anymore um there were restrictions placed on people who were uh, deemed, you know, politically undesirable or Jewish um, in Germany. Uh, so it became increasingly hard for, you know, politically engaged artists or even artists who were just doing things that the regime didn't like um, to continue working in Germany. So you s see a lot of artists uh, trying to move abroad if they could, um, but of course that requires papers. Um, where I think we sometimes have this kind of fantasy that oh, that the United States absorbed a lot of refugees or something like that, but you know any any of the kind of like uh, Einsteins or Panofskys or the kind of like major intellectual uh, and artistic figures that came to the United States uh, who are escaping uh, Nazi Germany, they were all you know quote unquote desirables. Um, there were a lot of people. Um, that was true for a lot of artists in the 1930s as well. So those who could and had to leave, they tried to leave. Um, and then there were other artists who, uh, you know, would try to find other kinds of jobs. So um, there are plenty of examples of artists uh, or painters becoming designers, um, people kind of retooling their uh, artistic um, their, uh, their, their artwork uh, to, you know, to do other forms of um, work um, in, in Germany. So uh, again, I mean, we think of Nazi Germany as a kind of behemoth and a mon monolith, but um, perhaps in a, in a way, like <laughs> within these, these countries, um, there are people just really trying to survive and live their everyday lives. Um, the flip side, like the, on the other end of the spectrum is somebody like uh, Albert Speer. So Albert Speer was uh, responsible for really the look and the feel of Nazi Germany. So when we think of Nazi Germany, we think of what we would call like neoclassical uh, or this kind of architecture. You know, think of like really clean columns, gigantic, huge monumental um, you know, spaces, um, you know, even the swastika, the uniforms, I mean, the, the, the whole look of Nazi Germany. Um, Albert Speer had a role in, uh, in helping shape 
Um, he like came up with plans for uh, you know the kind of redesign of uh, in, in, you know Berlin um, as a city for the Reich, as the seat of Reich, um, and. Uh, in the 1930s, um, you know, as I was saying before, Moholy was trying to, uh, I'm sorry, let me, I'm going to switch back real quick. As, as I said before, you know, for avant-garde artists working in the 1920s, there were a lot of artists who were arguing that, you know, um, artists should really just figure out ways for technology to be used in, uh, you know, in getting the masses really excited. And that's you know, it turns out that for kind of leftist, progressive, you know, artists on the left, that was not a possibility in the, in the 1930s. However, for an artist like Albert Speer, who had hitched his wagon to the Third Reich, I mean, this man had a lot of resources. This man actually could directly requisition, you know, anti-flag uh, searchlights, um, the searchlights that you would use in battle. He was able to, um, you know, requisition those, um, request them directly from the military um, for use in one of the most uh, stunning spectacles um, in the 1930s. It was the, uh, he stuck like, oh, I think it was like 150 um, searchlights around the perimeter of the Nuremberg drill grounds and created a cathedral of light. Um, it was, uh, you know, if you could just imagine, you know, a dark, a huge, like several, I think it would be like, I don't even know how many football playing fields it would be, um, but a huge expanse of space just surrounded in searchlights, columns of lights reaching up into the heavens. Um, you know, it, he created that stage for Hitler. Um, to give his speeches, to demonstrate the military might. Um, and, you know, uh, an artist like Leni Riefenstahl, or filmmaker like Leni Riefenstahl, she, uh, you know, did a whole film basically glorifying uh, Nazi Germany and used that as one of her backdrops. So, you know, there, there's enormous resources that are sunk on uh, the side of governments to support um, and to formulate a vision of uh, you know what they politically represent, um, and there were artists working for the Nazis um, in really powerful ways. Um, you know, when Leni Riefenstahl debuted her film um, at the Cannes Film Festival, it won um, the Palme d'Or. So, anyway, does that answer your question? It does, and I have a follow-up question. So there was sure. to condense what you just said a little bit during times of fascism really no it was great thank you um during times of fascism and totalitarian control by a governmental entity there are state-sanctioned yeah. artworks that enjoy mm -hmm. the benefit of lots of resources and then there are artists yeah. and artworks that perhaps go against the goals and the image the state is trying sure. to create yep. so we know in the mm -hmm. example of, of the rise of the third reich uh there were forbidden artworks that were supposedly destroyed, but were actually squirreled away by leaders yep. in this party. Yep. And yep. we are now, as a museum industry, still grappling with the fallout of that, of these looted, stolen artworks uh, that should yes. be yeah. to the folks they were stolen from, the families that they were stolen from. So do you have any experience directly yep. with looted art? No, so I haven't had any direct, you know, experience uh, with um, looted artwork um, per se. But, you know, one of the things that I'm grappling with uh, are the ways in which we tell the story of, um, you know, artists who in the years after the war have become heroes of resistance, you know, who have become artists who... Um, appeared to be uh, on the right side of history because Hitler didn't personally like the artwork or it was included in the Degenerate Art Exhibition in 1938. That was a major exhibition that the, the basically the Nazis mounted to show how ridiculous modern art was. Um, and it was uh, in that context that, you know, you have people um, whose aesthetic uh, ran counter to the look 
in the style of the Nazis, but who themselves were politically not necessarily anti-Nazi. So Emil Nolde is a really great example of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what's, what's even more interesting is that, uh, so we, uh, Another kind of like interesting area is uh, to consider an artist like Max Beckmann. Um, and we are now, uh, the Max Beckmann archive is now making um, a lot of previously unknown material available to uh, researchers. And um, what those uh, documents reveal is that, you know, uh, Max Beckmann was, so Max Beckmann is a German expressionist painter. He was already very well established before the Second World War. During the war, he left Germany. He really tried to escape and go to the United States, but ended up spending um, the, the duration of the war uh, in Amsterdam. And, you know, scholars have largely described that as his Amsterdam exile years. But, uh, you know, recent, if we look at recent, uh, the, the kind of documentation that's come to the fore more recently, um, what becomes apparent is that uh, Max Beckmann was able to stay in Amsterdam um, in part because he had very, very powerful supporters who, uh, who were, had very close ties uh, to the Nazi regime. Um, so, you know, he was able to, um, set, like he sold artwork, uh, to, uh, patrons, uh, in the West, so in the United States, in part because his modern style seemed like a condemnation of the Nazi regime. But even within Germany, you know, again, we, like, I think what, what this shows us is that we can't call like we can't look at Nazi Germany as a as a as a monolith because even within you know even within the government there were people who were collectors of modern art and so you know there were there were these secret buyers um in Germany of his work um and there were uh you know people who were uh, on the one hand buying up and seizing um uh you know artworks uh, from the Netherlands and from Belgium and France um, and shipping them off for Hitler's private museum and the same go-between would take Max Beckmann's paintings from Amsterdam and sell them you know in Germany to you know Nazi officials and their wives. Um, so you know I think that speaks to how complicated it is to talk about um, I mean, I think it gives a very complex view of the ways in which um, artists secure support, um, the forms that that support takes, and the ways in which, you know, I, I think there's oftentimes when we think about like fascist art um, and fascist, you know, official support, um, it, you know, we're, we're oftentimes tempted to kind of see that as a very black and white thing. Um, I think the case of Beckmann, it demonstrates that we have an artist who was, you know, heralded by the resistance for all sorts of different reasons, um, but also had a kind of secret market um, that uh, continued to exist um, during this period um, within Germany. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was being bought and sold uh, with a paper trail of receipts and tax, you know, forms. Mm. So... <laughs> Well, Beckmann is the perfect segue back into conversations about conservation because at the Stanley Museum of Art, where we both work, we have several pieces by this artist that have needed conservation in mm -hmm. recent years. So I'm wondering if you could just give us a general overview of what conservation is. And you've spoken a little bit to this already, but the most basic definition, what is art conservation? So. Um, the most basic definition of art conservation is, uh, so there's a difference between restoration and conservation. Can you hear me? I think I might have. Yeah, you're good. I can hear you. Hello? Hello. Okay, good. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's Hi. Okay. Hi. Um, so there's a difference between art conservation and art, uh, art, art uh, restoration. 
Um, conservation is a relatively new um, idea where um, instead of trying to bring an artwork back to its quote unquote original state, um, the conservator tries to make sure that uh, it, you know, it looks good enough to show um, that the materials are stable enough so that the object doesn't fall apart and um, that we try to, you know, maintain it, 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 to, to, to keep an artwork, uh, to maintain its uh, continued existence <laughs> under the best of circumstances. And the reason why I say that there's a difference between that and restoration, um, where, you know, an artist would go, where, where somebody would go in and try to fix something up, so spruce it up and make it, you know, um, try to kind of make it the way that it used to be, um, is that that, that, is, uh, that has oftentimes been a much more invasive form of, um, you know, a kind of uh, attempt to preserve an artwork. Um, does that sort of answer your question? Absolutely, thank you. And what about artworks that were meant to be ephemeral? So in your conversation about the artists that were producing work in new media in the 1920s, 1930s, and also moving to different types of artistic production because of cultural chaos and because of lack of material and financial resources. They were making these things that might not have been intended to last forever. How do conservators deal mm -hmm. with arts that weren't meant to last? So I think there's um, a lot of different ways of thinking about this because it really kind of depends. Again, this is an artist by artist um, consideration. I think there are artists who um, embrace the fact that things are going to fall apart. And then there are artists who like couldn't have possibly known um, that the things that they were making were going to really totally fall apart. Um, and so like part of it is just um, conservators work really closely and carefully and think through a lot of these kind of theoretical questions um, with, uh, you know, art historians um, and with curators and theorists. Um, and so, you know, there are some things where it's just kind of like, you know, we have, for example, um, in our collections, some really amazing sculptures that were made by Lil Picard um, out of things like styrofoam. Um, and lipstick and you know I think I, I really would love to show a lot of these uh, works and they're not going to look like they're, they're just not going to look fresh they're never going to look fresh um, but you know styrofoam is a kind of material where you are not going to stop the you, you're just not going to be able to reverse time and so in that case you know I would work with a conservator to make sure that it's stable to show um, but I'm not going to pretend that you know it's going to look it's going to look uh, spick span and new. Um, and so, you know, the way we show it is to acknowledge the fact that uh, this is a, a performance relic or this is not meant to be seen as sculpture or this, you know, um, and to, to kind of highlight that in the way that we stage um, and present uh, an artwork. Thank Does you. that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you. And what is the end of the world according to art conservation, do you think? What is the end of the world according to, well, is it the end of the world or the end of the artwork? Um, the Ooh, world will persist, you know, um, but there are artworks that will die. Um, and, you know, for example, like I've done a lot of work on uh, sculptures made of, uh, plastic. And plastics are really fascinating as a material, um, in part because, you know, two clear pieces of plastic that start out in life looking pretty much the same, both pieces clear, flat, uh, you know, you, you could scratch the surface, you could potentially paint it, um, depending on the formulation, one uh, can hold up really well and then the other can, you know, like quite literally shatter. Um, so in the case of like plexiglass, you know, that is going to hold up very differently than um, cellulose acetate. So those are two different, you know, kinds of plastics. They look very similar, but they have very different properties. What's really, you know, when we 
there there are certain works that we desperate that I the field um, desperately want to hold on to because they are beautiful and because they mark this particular moment in a particular in an artist's career, um, and we want to hold on to them. Um, but you know there there have been a lot of debates about uh, whether or not it makes sense or is justifiable to make replicas replicas of paintings, replicas of sculptures, um, and under what condition it makes sense to do something like that. I mean, we're in the age of 3D printing. We're in an age where we can make, you know, pretty good uh, approximations. Um, and, you know, oftentimes the question is like, at what point do we let it go? At what point do we allow something to, die really a proper death, you know, like allow it to kind of retreat from view um, so that we're not, you know, given an object that doesn't really represent the artist's intention or, or you know, um, intention or desire or, or resemble anything of, of what um, that work was supposed to be and do. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think those are, those are all questions. I, I, I can't answer what does, like, I, I can't answer what does the end of the world look like to a conservator. Um, but there are a lot of really interesting cases where, you know, we have to grapple with the potential death of an object. Um, I, I want think, to come you back know, to Eva Hesse's. Oh, go ahead. Oh, Eva Hesse's uh, work in latex, for instance, is a really great example of that. I want to go back to what you said about a proper death of an object. Yeah. A current controversy in the museum industry is how to deal with the fallout of colonialism and objects that were yeah. acquired in ways that yeah. were less than scrupulous, that uh, played mm -hmm. upon the existing oppression of people's outside of the Western world. So yep. the objects that were acquired in this way were created in a ritual context or were, or were only meant to be encountered by a very specific group of people, but now are on display for yep. millions. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the intersection of colonialism and art conservation. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And um, I think conservation there you know, is not like, it, conservation is not a procedure. It's not just a set of, um, it, it's not just things that we do, but is tied up with a lot of, you know, ethical questions, just as, you know, I was suggesting that there is potentially something like a proper death that you can give an object. Um, and so, you know, the questions of conservation also, you know, one of the things that we have to consider is like, is, I, and we could call it a curatorial question. I, I do think that it's also a question that um, ultimately touches on conservation is whether or not an object is appropriate to show. In what context is something uh, appropriate to show? Is merely, is telling the story of how an object gets into an institution um, without making gestures at, um, you know, working to contact or engage source communities, is that enough, you know? Um, and I think these are, these are all questions that have to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and, you know, I, I think we began the conversation with, uh, you know, an examination of the Third Reich and um, of fascism, and it was also under those circumstances that um, a lot of artworks um, were stolen or, ex you know, ex um, extorted. Um, so, you know, people were selling things under duress. Um, and, you know, so that's another example of the ways in which, you know, artworks, um, Western artworks end up in Western museums, um, you know, in, in ways that uh, are, that, that have to be, uh, the, where, where restitutions have to be made um, in the kind of in this, the kind of broader context of colonial violence, um, I think another set of questions that needs to be posed is what we expect from, 
you know, museums, we, we have collections because we believe that artworks have power. And um, the next step, if we are going to take that seriously, is to ask the question, how do we share that power or how do we return that power to communities from which these objects came? Or how do the objects that are in our care, um, and I use that, like, I, I'm actually much more invested in thinking about collections as, you know, collections of objects that, that we steward, that we take care of, um, that it, and not in terms of that we own. Um, because no matter how an object, like if, if an object came in at an earlier time through perfectly legal means, doesn't mean that it, it is in our care in perfectly unproblematic ways. So, you know, I think these, um, the status of these objects have to constantly be um, revisited. Uh, we have to think very carefully um, about the ways in which um, we create opportunities uh, for people to draw strength from um, the objects in our care. Um, and I think there are going to be situations where um, as a part of conservation to properly conserve an object um, is to return it. Um, so does that answer your question? Yes, thank you so much. How do you think climate change and other disasters like our current pandemic affects art conservation and museums more generally? Um, the, I mean, this is like a really uh, seemingly minor thing, uh, but you know, there, in some, I've seen a topic that's been circulating on conservation uh, sites and uh, listservs, questions about disinfecting um, solutions and their impact on paper, for example, or like, you know, art materials. Um, I think we're in a moment where we are, we want to make sure that we create safe spaces, like actually, you know, sanitized and safe spaces. Um, and, you know, trying to kind of figure out how we sanitize and create, um, you know, pathways for people to look and share you know, uh, like trying to figure all of that out is, is a challenge um, because, you know, a lot of these disinfectants and things um, don't play well with um, art materials. Um, I mean, that's a very minor thing, but in terms of climate change, I think like, you know, I think that that has a huge impact on, um, in, in a lot of ways, how uh, the, how various communities um, have to, I mean, it, it, it has led to such catastrophic dislocation. Um, you know, you can see like the, uh, the various wars that have led to, you know, the largest human migration crisis um, in human history, period, uh, is going on right now because of climate change. Um, and it has had uh, serious consequences for uh, cultural artifacts, you know. Um, it has had an impact on, um, you know, entire sites have been destroyed, um, you know, archeological digs have been looted and has gone on the market. So, you know, I think the uh, climate change has had an impact um, on museums in the sense that we have to, I think it, it it really strengthens our the responsibility for us to abide very closely and collaboratively um, to make sure that we're not, uh, you know, collecting things that are looted. Um, I think it also, um, I think that it, it gives, it, it just really heightens uh, a kind of sense of responsibility um, to, again, uh, create uh, spaces where communities that gather in new places, um, might see themselves in our exhibitions and in our uh, spaces. That makes any sense. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that the impact of climate change, like, it's not just climate change, it's like the climate change is part of um, a broader kind of uh, global crisis um, that uh, the pandemic is exacerbating, but it's not, um, I, I think rather than it 
you know, parachuting down and being something completely new, um, I think it reveals a, a lot of structural problems um, that have long existed. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, what gives you hope yeah. right now? What gives me hope? Um, I am not a hopeful person, <laughs> which does not mean, I mean, like, for me, I, there's a great line, something that Kafka actually said is that there's lots of hope in the world, it's not for us. And um, that seems like an incredibly bleak thing to say. Um, but I mean, I don't think, I'm, I'm not a person who really puts much stock in hope, but I do put a lot of stock in um, the actions that individuals are taking. And I think seeing, again, like before, as I was saying, you know, seeing the ways in which um, communities rallied around their arts spaces, seeing the ingenuity with which um, artists are trying to find ways of supporting each other's work, um, you know, just watching how students have been so um, incredibly uh, responsive also to, you know, to trying to help uh, other people out. Um, you know, I think that, that impulse to aid and to support and to create space um, for one another, um, that, that is an incredible thing to see uh, a form of commitment take form, um, uh, a, a kind of commitment take shape, um, a commitment to making sure that, um, you know, art spaces continue to exist um, that art is valued, that culture is valued, um, and seen not as a luxury, but, um, as, you know, like, the whole point of human existence, you know, um, is to find these shared forms of expression. Um, I think that's what, uh, I don't know if it gives me hope, but that's what I look towards. Mm. So, I Thank do you. rely upon the work of art. Yeah, that's a good reminder for everybody. Yeah. And is, is there anything else I should have asked you? No, I'm happy to answer anything else. I'm sorry I was a bit rambly. Um, but yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about um, possible ends and possible. I, I really don't think it's complete. No end is complete. Um, that's the... That's the scary thing, the really wonderful thing. That's a perfect place to end this podcast. <laughs> Thank you so Great. much. This has been Art at the End of the World with Beryl Rose Smith. Tune in next week to learn about another way the world might end. The music for this podcast was written, performed, and produced by Gabby Vanek. You can hear more of her work at her SoundCloud, which is linked in the show notes. Thanks, Gabby, and thanks all of you for listening.